Ludo Martin's lecture on Lenin's What is to be Done. Tonight, we will start a lecture on the party, created by Lenin under the picture of Thomas Sankara. It's difficult to judge in real time exactly what happened in Burkina, what was responsible, and what caused one or the other, but one thing is certain. It's that these dramatic events that happened at Burkina Faso have to do with the problem that we will address today. The question of a party. The question of how to build this party. What is the role of this party? What form of organization it will take? And its relation to other organizations? This is a problem that is alive and well in many countries in the world. In many countries of the third world, where the masses are trying to engage themselves in the path of revolution, the question of the party, a Bolshevik party, is discussed in all countries, so we can say one of the key contributions of Lenin, precisely in regards to Marxism, is his development on the party of the working class. It is his contributions which played a big part in making possible the victory of the first socialist revolution in the world, and it is often the question of the party that is at the center of the debate within the revolutionary movements of today. Tonight's lecture, I will make four points. First, we want to speak on the ideological base of Lenin's party, notably on its defense of revolutionary Marxism against all the currents of opportunism. On the first point, we want to remember what the situation was at the beginning of the century when Lenin started his revolutionary activities. There were small groups carrying themselves as Marxists here and there, some students, some workers, without any ties between them within the revolutionary anti-Tsarist movement that was taking place in Russia always dominated by the populist, who wanted a peasant revolution rather than a working-class revolution, and saw a peasant revolution as what would directly bring socialism. It was a big debate amongst the intellectuals, and the universities most of all, and, as it often happens in similar movements, everyone somewhat became a Marxist, or would pass themselves off as one, because populism needed to be critiqued from a Marxist viewpoint. There were people who then employed Marxism to critique this theory of peasant revolution, and who also used it to critique populism. So, there was a little bit of everything calling itself a Marxist at this time. Notably, there were people of academic background within the universities who would serve themselves of Marxism to critique populism, but who, at the same time, say that capitalism in Russia was inevitable, that Marx had clearly predicted this, and in fact, used this to justify the coming of capitalism. So, for them, Marxism was not at all a weapon to do a popular revolution, but it was a situation where populism was dominant, and populism at the time meant that we will do socialism without passing through capitalism. So, they critiqued this populist theory, not to install a revolution like Lenin would do, but rather to say, therefore, we support it. So these people, these quote-unquote Marxists, they had the opportunity to write within legal publications that were accepted by the Tsar. This is because they were not speaking of revolution. They were speaking of Marxism in the academic sense. Lenin participated in one of these publications of legal Marxism at a moment where it was essential to critique the old populist theories and to propagate Marxism. But, because Lenin advocated for revolutionary Marxism, this did not last. Very quickly, the people who wanted Marxism in the sense of revolutionary doctrine were eliminated from all of these publications. And then, it only consisted of Marxist writings that had gotten rid of all that was revolutionary within Marxism. So therefore, 
This is the situation in 1900, 1901, and 1902. A lot of small intellectual groups and workers who portrayed themselves as Marxist and publicly had a stance that already was, in every sense of the word, tainted. This is what was accessible to the public. This is what was able to be purchased. In the beginning, the Marxist movement was essentially a revolutionary one. But in light of the situation that we just described, the second point is that we very quickly see suggested a current that said we need to stop Marxist dogmatism. We need to break away from orthodox Marxism. Stop this petrified state of Marxist thinking. Get away from the doctrinism and that we need freedom of criticism. The third point, what was the content of this new current? It consisted of people who engage in the first movement of revolutionary Marxism. These were the people who were speaking out against dogmatism, the lack of freedom for criticism within the Marxist party. And they would say this, in the universities there has long been people who are specialized in the critique of Marxism. There are people who are paid for this, people who have only this to do. So, the bourgeois academic critique of Marxism has existed for a long time. What this current is trying to claim is the right to bring all the ideas of critiquing Marxism, which is coming directly from the bourgeoisie, to bring this to our movement. These people said that it is not true that capitalism brings misery, that it is not true that the proletarianization of society is developing, that it is not true that the contradictions within a capitalist system become more intensified. For them, capitalism will develop well-being, eliminate contradictions, develop democracy, and through this democracy would regulate the problems of society. In other words, they were saying that the dictatorship of the proletariat was something of the past. It was no longer at all something that needed to be, now that capitalism was democratizing, that the progressive liberals and the Marxists had a wide terrain of unity, and that in a society where everyone had the right to vote, the question of violence to overthrow capitalism was one that need not be asked. This was their thesis. And this thesis was elaborated on by the bourgeoisie at the universities for a long time. They led this into the Marxist movement by saying we claim the freedom of critique. The fourth point. How did this current develop and defend itself in the presence of the Marxist movement within the circles of students and workers? Essentially, there are two conceptions. First, there was a birth of people who said that as Marxists, we should be interested above all else with the labor movement and that they wanted to concentrate on the concrete daily practical struggles of the masses of laborers that were extremely exploited in Russia. They would say that this is our work as Marxists, and all these sterile discussions that never end amongst the intellectuals, this does not concern us. This is the first current. The second one said that besides these disputes amongst the intellectuals not being of interest for you, we must still realize that these people are still Marxists and hold themselves to the class struggle. So, with these two conceptions, we let enter all the different merchandise that we just brought attention to. Because those that led with the daily struggle of workers, without concerning themselves too much with all of these theories, and would say that all of these different theories just wanted the same thing anyways, these people here accepted that the theories that Lenin was denouncing would enter the movement. I want to illustrate, through a singular example, one a little more developed what this type of idea is that was introduced by the people who said that we have the liberty to voice critique. Is Marxism a dogma? Under this cover, there are many ideas that pass through. 
The leader at the international level of this current was Bernstein. Bernstein had written the first book that portrayed itself as Marxist, but still attacked all the fundamental principles that were themselves Marxist. So from all that was pushed forward, I will take one single example to give and show where it leads to. I will read some citations. Quote, there is a position of needing to examine very seriously perspectives offered by the colonial conquest. End quote. This is a leader of the German Socialist Party who is speaking. This party is considered as the biggest revolutionary party in the world at this time, in the year 1897. Quote, Colonization has started. So in light of this, it is said that we need to, very seriously, examine the perspectives offered by the colonial conquest. End quote. Quote, The indigenous need to be well treated and compensated, and all of the questions of administration need to be object of rigorous control. But there is no reason to prioritize the condemnation of all new colonial acquisitions. End quote. Quote, we have to think of the future. Germany imports every year considerable quantities of colonial products. End quote. Quote, one day will come where we will wish at least somewhat to find these products in our own colonies, and it's not necessarily true that the occupation of tropical lands by Europeans hurts the indigenous population. End quote. Quote, in many cases, it's rather the opposite that is happening. End quote. Quote, it's not the conquest that benefits the indigenous, but the improvements of the land. Therefore, a more advanced civilization has superior rights. End quote. By the way, Bernstein is still viewed today by the Belgian Socialist Party as a great Marxist, as a father of socialism in Belgium. That is craziness. But that craziness applies to all the major aspects of their ideology. So to fight this tide of bourgeois ideas that was spreading inside the Marxist movement, what were Lenin's arguments? There were three of them. That's going to be my fifth point. First, he said that us revolutionary Marxists, we must go back to the theoretical basics. We must pay more attention to theory in our movement. Let's remember that Lenin was at first an activist, and he led practical work in the universities, in the factories, and later in Siberia. But he came to the conclusion that if we wanted to redirect the workers' movement in a Marxist direction, we had to improve our theoretical knowledge. So it's in his book, What is to be Done, that Lenin formulates his famous thesis. Quote, there is no revolutionary movement without revolutionary theory. End quote. So why is Marxist theory important? First, he says that we are at the beginning of our movement, and a mistake which may not seem so important at the beginning may become very important if we keep going in the wrong direction. So what appears to be minor differences at the start may turn out to be a catastrophe later on. Therefore, at the beginning of a movement, we must pay even greater attention to theoretical matters than we would in a movement that has already gained practical experience, that has built revolutionary traditions, and has followed the correct path for a few years. Very often has history proved the correctness of this first point. For example, our organization comes from the student movement of 1968. We worked with comrades in Paris who belonged to the people's cause. There were no big differences between us, only small ones. It did not matter at the time because we worked together. Then, the people's cause degenerated and totally failed. It does not exist anymore. So that's an example of Marxist-Leninist organizations, or Maoists as they were called, having small differences at first and later ending in totally different directions. Second reason to emphasize the importance of theory. 
Lenin says the Marxist movement has now become a world movement. So the experiences in various countries are many and rich in content. We must learn how to draw lessons from them, and to do that, we need a lot of theoretical knowledge to judge what is good or what is bad in all these experiences so our movement can benefit from them. If we don't study theory seriously, we won't be able to draw lessons from these experiences. Thirdly, here in Russia, theory is most important because we face a situation that no one has ever faced, which is to overthrow Tsarism. A workers' party, a revolutionary party whose task is to overthrow capitalism, is now in a situation where it has to fight the biggest autocratic feudal power in Europe. It is a gigantic fight. So Lenin says we must be strong in theory, because we have tasks that nobody had before us. That brings us to another point. We must be able to analyze what is specific to the Russian situation. To be able to chart a path adapted to Russian conditions of the time, we need theory and we must master it. So here we are dealing with the general theory of Marxism and how to apply it to the very specific and extremely complex Russian situation. All of this has been summarized in a text of Frederick Engels cited by Lenin. Quote, it will be the duty of party leaders to familiarize themselves more and more with questions of theory and to never forget that socialism, since becoming a science, must be treated as a science, meaning must be studied as a science, end quote. Then, our work will be to spread with increasing energy, our always sharpening knowledge to the working class. This point is very important in regards to the beginning of the party. For example, you can find in many underdeveloped countries, parties calling themselves Marxist-Leninist, and where almost no one has ever taken time to study Marxism-Leninism as you would study a science. Some use it as a sort of Bible, with some pieces that they round up from here, a few pages from there, and so after having superficially read this, we think of ourselves as Marxists, and that with this baggage we now carry, that we can lead and direct a revolution. So if we were to practice medicine, chemistry, or physics with some information from this book and some from another, this obviously would not suffice. This is evident to everyone, but there are some who think that they can lead a revolution with a few superficial pieces taken from left and from the right. So it's important that from the start of Lenin's work, he underlines and emphasizes that Marxism is a science and therefore must be studied as one. First task, to resume the theoretical work. Second task, he states that a party cannot develop as a revolutionary party if we don't learn to be vigilant in regards to opportunist currents. As such that we live in a country where the bourgeoisie is in power, opportunism is an inevitable byproduct and inevitably returns within our organization so there must be a permanent vigilance and criticism of all the opportunist tendencies if we truly wish to survive as a revolutionary party. Third task, Lenin says that we must fight against the wavering and lack of concentration in the practical movement. In the practical movement, we see the small side of things and engage in certain activities over others. And as we carry out this day-to-day -day work, the overall concepts and revolutionary tactics of our program pass over us. So, he says that our practice must be aligned at the same level as the overall revolutionary movement. These are the three tasks that he gives to build the party. To finish this first point, a sixth subpoint to this, is this effort of Lenin to maintain vigilance 
and to strongly critique the opportunist and bourgeois concepts that would infiltrate the Marxist movement. This point here hit it right on the nose, because this vigilance was not being carried out in the socialist movements at the time, with such a firm and precise stance in the struggle against opportunist currents, and it was not at all appreciated by everyone. So, frequently there were attacks against Lenin, saying he's always looking for a fight, that he critiques everything, that he exaggerates everything. This was the general feeling at the time. In the beginning of Lenin's work in 1902-1904, there were many books inside the revolutionary movement of Russia, the socialist movement, that were written against Lenin. But the most violent as well as the most profound was the basic document that Trotsky wrote in 1904, quote, our political tasks, end quote. Here he accuses Lenin of theoretically terrorizing intellectuals and taking an orthodox stance, one that is very similar to the absolute truth that inspired the Jacobins in the French Revolution. This orthodox truth trumps all, and those who contest this must be outcasted, just as we should be ready to exclude those who have any doubts or questions. So, what he is saying is that Lenin is carrying out theoretical terrorism, that to him is an absolute truth, and all those who doubt this absolute truth should be expelled. And it is in this manner that he started a campaign against these concepts of Lenin. So to summarize, now, 70 years later, everyone says Lenin was a great revolutionary, and that his formation of the party is the model to follow. But we must not forget that Lenin was almost alone, and that even those who after the fact were cultivated as such, relentlessly attacked him at this period in time. Maybe, with the critiques a last point to mention briefly, is the question on the liberty of criticism. The people, rather than the opportunist, who brought themselves to the movement would say, we do have the liberty to critique. And this can still be heard today. So perhaps some specific points on this are in order. When we speak of the liberty to critique within the Marxist movement, we must above all else also pose the question from a class standpoint. From which class position is this critique being posed? Marxism is a revolutionary doctrine, and is itself a critique above all else. Therefore, those who are Marxist and who are developing and cultivating Marxism, of course they are at the liberty of certain critiques. But their liberty of critique comes from and serves as a revolutionary position such as criticizing certain aspects of theory that might be outdated or no longer relevant to the current situation, or to critique what may be delaying revolutionary conceptions. So again, these are critiques from a revolutionary standpoint, and in line with the revolutionary methods of Marxism. It's a critique meant to advance the revolutionary cause of the workers and the working class, and so of course, all Marxists are for the liberty to critique, in this sense. But there is also another kind of freedom to critique. There is the liberty of criticism that comes from the class position of the bourgeoisie, and that, in any circumstance, will always present arguments to say that Marxism is outdated, and that we must remove these aspects from it because they are irrelevant. They will replace these theories of Marxism not with theories more revolutionary in nature, or even more relevant to the situation from a revolutionary view, but rather will substitute them for bourgeois and opportunist concepts. Let us give one of the most striking examples. When Stalin was in charge of the international communist movement, he made certain mistakes, and so here, 
there was some substance that may be worthy of criticism. When we see these criticisms that were expressed on some of Stalin's mistakes, we see that, if we draw a line on this freedom of criticism, there are two class positions that are in complete opposition. Speaking of two men, Tito and Mao. The two of them criticized certain theories of Stalin, but these critiques were made as communists. They were made as revolutionaries, and this is proven because they criticized that in which they found error. They developed their work, their party, and they took their revolution all the way to victory. So their critiques were effectively seen from the point of view of the working class and its historical struggles. We can find in the 30s and 40s many people who rid themselves of all Marxist ideals, of all revolutionary ideals, and who criticized Stalin to lead to the other side. So when they would claim and speak of the liberties of criticism, it was merely to criticize. Even in light of real errors worthy of criticism, this is not the problem. At the end of the day, the problem is that their critiques and freedom of criticism served as dissent, and to change camps because their liberty to criticize that which they wanted was not a revolutionary critique, but rather was one completely void of revolutionary thought. There are a great number of examples that are very striking. Some people, even some cadre of the communist movement, who in Stalin's time expressed some criticisms and then distanced themselves from the communist movement, to end up on the other end of the spectrum. So there are quite a number of opportunists in the communist movement who started to criticize Stalin, and who later then became fascist, even holding leading positions in fascist parties. In France, there was a member of the political bureau of the French Communist Party. As a matter of fact, there were three who at a certain point in life were members of the political bureau of the French Communist Party, who had disagreements between Stalin and Trotsky, and fell on the Trotsky side, and devolved further and further in this direction to eventually leave the party and ultimately become leaders of the French Fascist Party. There was Barbet, Killor, and Doriot. Jacques Doriot became the leader, the number one of the Fascist Party in France. A fourth person in France who was leading the international communist movement was named Victor Portolome. He was the general secretary of Doriot's party, so he was one of the main leaders where Dorio was at. He wrote a book that showed his whole progression from communism to fascism. In this book, he criticizes Stalin and says that he betrayed the proletarian revolution, that Stalin critiqued and betrayed the world revolution, that Stalin purged old Bolsheviks, that Stalin installed an authoritarian power, personal power. All these critiques he made, where were they accomplished? On page two, he says, quote, when disillusionment pushes you outside of communism, what is to be done? End quote. There was, of course, the Trotskyist tendency. But in my opinion, if we want to remain realist, only fascism offered him a revolutionary path. Therefore, he became the leader of a fascist movement. Now, these are, of course, some extreme examples. But these extreme examples are important to emphasize this idea that the liberty to critique is a term which can serve in any direction. And as Marxists, we are of course for the liberty to critique, but we demand these critiques be based in the revolutionary movement, the working class movement. So the liberty to critique that is applied must be judged by its results, just as the critiques by Mao and Tito are to be judged by their results. They 
were able to stay communist and even realize the revolution and prove that their critiques were justified. On the other hand, there has always been and always will be some people who smuggle in all the bourgeois rubbish and even extreme right-wing ideas into the Marxist movement on the basis of demanding the liberty to critique. This was the first main point, the ideological basis of the party of Lenin, the defense of revolutionary Marxism against the currents of opportunism. The second main point is the political base of the party of Lenin. So what are the contents of bourgeois politics in the middle of working class politics, and what distinguishes the two? How are communist politics different from bourgeois reformist politics? First comes the question of the relation between the spontaneous character of the working class movement and its consciousness. This is a primary theme that was fiercely discussed in the Russian socialist movement. First, as an illustration, there was a current in the movement that was advancing a number of different theories, saying the progress of our working class movement these last years is that the workers are finally taking care of their own fate and have ripped themselves away from the hands of the rulers. So before, we had Marxist intellectuals who took charge of the movement and who would say the progress is that finally the workers have taken their cause into their own hands. They would also say a strike fund, an association to prepare strikes in Russia, is more practical and more important than ten political associations. They said as well, as Marxists, we must focus not on the cream of the crop of workers, the small minority, but rather we should focus on the middle majority of workers. Next, they'd say we must struggle, us the Marxist workers, not for waves of future generations, but instead for a substantial improvement of our own situation. So not some promises for the year 2000. The struggle must bring us concrete advancements of the near future. They did say, besides theoretical concepts, Marx clearly showed the consciousness of the workers develops from struggle, the daily struggle that the workers engage in. These are all theories that belong to the current that was mentioned in my first point, where they said all these theoretical discussions don't concern us. What concerns us is the working class movement itself, the organization of workers for their struggle. It rings a nice tune, and someone who presents this position well enough will be very convincing. That was the first point. On to the second point. How did Lenin evaluate this current? Well, Lenin developed the theory that the ideology of the spontaneous uprisings of workers is syndicalism, and that syndicalism as an ideology is a bourgeois current. This is to say that it is a current that will not surpass bourgeois society. So what does he mean by this? He says the spontaneous uprisings is where the worker is oppressed, bullied, and exploited, and now they spontaneously wish to fight back. They want to push back against oppression, and so they also know that they must unite with other workers, so let's all unite. This is the stance of the union, to struggle against the bosses and to require that the government pass laws to regulate certain issues. This concept needs not knowledge of history, for it happens everywhere in every part of the world. It is the spontaneous uprisings of the working class. This is what we call in Marxist terms a trade unionist consciousness. So Lenin says that this trade union consciousness, we as Marxists view this as a bourgeois consciousness. This is to say that this concept that develops aims to fight for improvements of the workers' situation within the society that is in front of them. So this battle that erupts spontaneously in this way 
is not yet a battle to first indicate that which is essential to the society and subsequently dismantle it. This is not at all that. So why is it, in the spontaneous worker movements, that there is a conception that will not surpass the bourgeois cadre that presents itself? It's absolutely understandable, says Lenin. It's because we live in a sort of situation, in a society, where the bourgeoisie has dominated for tens of hundreds of years, and their ideology and concepts of the world have been elaborated on for a long time, where their vision of things is spread everywhere by all means and has been for a long time as well, in fact by the churches, schools, and by the media. So this is normal, that someone who lives in such a society, where these spontaneous ideas of struggle must be ideas which institute themselves inside the cadre of the society in which they are present. The third point, Lenin says, as Marxist, we must be clear on the question of the connection between these spontaneous uprisings and the consciousness of socialism, and so for this, you need to know what socialist consciousness consists of. His theory is that socialist consciousness is not something that comes spontaneously from confrontation between the worker and the boss. And if we stay in the confrontation between the workers and the exploiters, we will miss many things that are essential to what Marx called the socialist consciousness. From Marx, quote, Socialism, which we call scientific socialism. Well, what does scientific socialism presuppose? We can only speak of scientific socialism if this socialism is based in scientific understanding, philosophy, history, the economy, and the international situation, end quote. So, Marx and Engels, they took it upon themselves to conduct research and analysis. They put together all that the bourgeois had found more advanced, and they worked in a manner of critique. Critique in the domains of philosophy, economics, politics, history, and international. Thus, the Marxist movement cannot exist without this work that was taken up by Marx and Engels, and continued by all those who want to, in the following period of history, develop the socialist consciousness as it is. Secondly, the socialist movement and socialist consciousness cannot be built without including the most advanced technical knowledge. Thirdly, socialist consciousness cannot exist without the concentration and systemization of all the concrete and practical experiences of struggle by the workers and popular masses. So in Marx's concept, there are at least three things that are of notable importance that you need to really understand to be able to talk about a movement that carries socialist consciousness. It is also Marx's concept that the revolutionary class of our time, the working class, must be on track to develop society further than the bourgeoisie has done thus far. So, to develop this bourgeois society further, the working class must be capable of putting together and directing all the knowledge that the bourgeoisie has already established. Overall, we can say that there are two branches to attain socialist consciousness. All of the experiences of concrete struggle must become the rule, and all the contributions made in the areas of science, philosophy, history, politics, and economics must be put together and transformed on the basis of the interest of the working class and the masses of workers. This is from the beginning of the socialist movement in Europe. They'd say that socialist consciousness is something that is imported into the working class movement and is not something that will spontaneously come to be. So this importation into the working class movement must come from collectivization. This cannot come from one person alone. 
so to establish the knowledge in the areas of history, economics, etc., along with the knowledge of the working-class movement and its practical experiences, there must be people who come together. This is essentially the party, or an organized unit where there are contributions from workers and from intellectuals tied to the working-class movement, such as intellectuals of work in the economic or historical sphere, etc., that bring elements that can constitute the conception of scientific socialism for that given time period. As a last point, the workers that are conscious and that are advanced must participate, of course, in the elaboration of a socialist consciousness. These elaborations are based, amongst other things, on the experiences of the masses of workers. Only they may add other elements, and you need all of this together to truly speak to socialist movements worthy of the name. It is on this basis that Lenin says, when we put in front of the ideas of workers for workers, the true workers struggle and that the workers have ripped their feet away from the hands of the leaders, all this accomplishes is taking a movement that bases itself essentially on spontaneous struggle, a struggle where the workers fix themselves. With such a concept, we will never have a revolutionary movement worthy of the name, a movement that carries the future of society, because to be able to carry the future of society and to be capable of destroying capitalist society not merely install reforms and gain some improvements, to be able to destroy it and replace it specifically with something better, which is socialism, there needs to be knowledge that comes from more than just the fight between the worker and the capitalist. This was the first point, the theory of Lenin on spontaneity and consciousness. So on the second point, we will build upon this with the concrete situation of Lenin, how Lenin defined the communist politics that he wanted to develop in Tsarist Russia, where he still needed to confront feudalism. The first point that Lenin emphasizes is the role of the party in Tsarist Russia. He says the role of the party is not merely to make demands of the working class for more beneficial conditions to sell their labor. Of course, we must do this. We must fight for better working conditions within the system of exploitation so that the situation may be better and so that the price that is offered in exchange for their labor force is increased. He also says the role of the party is not only to bring this fight, the essential role of the party is to fight for the abolition of such a society that requires the workers and employees to sell their labor power. So the party of the working class must represent the working class not only in its relation to a group of given exploiters, this party must also represent the working class in relation to all the other classes of society and represent the working class to the state and its world system of imperialism. This is the role of the party, to represent the working class and elaborate its position in relation to all the different classes in society, the state, and imperialism which the global system of capitalism that they, the working class, are entangled in. From this thesis stems three points that I would like to detail a little further. First, communist politics must base themselves on the understanding of relations between all classes. So the relation between the working class and feudalism, such as the nobles, and their forced property, the relation between the working class and the capitalist, the different classes within the peasantry, and the middle class. So the party must understand what are the relations amongst all these classes, what their contradictions are, and what are their points of convergence. All this must be elaborated on, and this is why Lenin says the communists, or the social democrats of the time of this book as they were called, must engage with all the classes of society to study 
all the particularities unique to each class that the current society consists of, to observe all the aspects of each class, to see their strengths and their weaknesses, to see at which point they align themselves with the Tsar or the big bourgeoisie, and at which point they may have an alliance with the working class. This is the first point, the comprehension of the whole and the relations between the classes which makes up the whole of society, to learn how to conduct a united political movement that will advance in the way of socialism. Second point, Lenin says there must be action, there must be a practice to react against all the abuses made against the different classes that society consists of. Under Tsarism, they oppressed the students, the intellectuals, and the journalists. There was also a censorship of certain religious currents and certain nationalities. There was the family in certain peasant regions in light of their relation to property. So to all these problems that were affecting different classes in society, Lenin said, the working class must be able to react and to defend all the popular causes against Tsarism. The working class must not only be concerned with their own struggle against their bosses, they must also support in a revolutionary manner the different confrontations that there may be against the Tsar and the various pockets of the population that are not workers. The third point, says Lenin, we, the party of the working class, need to send people to all the classes to direct them in a revolutionary fashion against Tsarism. There cannot be a situation where each specific section of the population has their own politics, which take hold of that section, the workers for the workers, the revolutionaries for the working class. This is not the political path that we must follow. We must be conscious elements, revolutionary elements, that will work with all these other classes with a goal of having them march in the direction of the working class against the common enemy, the Tsar, and then the big bourgeoisie. These are the three big points indicated by Lenin. I hope that I am properly explaining the concept of the first ones who said workers for the workers, the struggle of the workers against the bosses, that this is a concept that is very limited to its specific struggle, and that Lenin's concept was strongly different. He would say, of course we must organize the struggle of the workers against their exploiters directly. But if we want to lead a revolutionary struggle, we must aim at the question of the state, and we must address this question in the context of the relationships of all the classes in that society in relation to the state. The working class cannot be merely concerned with their own direct interest, but must realize that they are capable of supporting all actions taken against the Tsar by others. Furthermore, there needs to be conscious Marxist elements working amongst the intellectuals and the peasants to help them formulate a revolutionary program against the Tsar, so as to construct a front of all classes against the enemy in common. Thirdly, I'd like to indicate briefly how these two theories were fiercely fought against by certain socialist currents, such as the Mensheviks. They were against all the concepts put forward by Lenin, as was Trotsky. To finish up this point, I will now indicate in which terms these people criticized Lenin. I will limit myself to one point that is probably the most clear and the most interesting. They'd say, and by the way Trotsky and the Mensheviks held the same position at this point, and were even in the same group, they'd say Lenin is not a real Marxist. He is someone who speaks as a Marxist, but is actually a bourgeois revolutionary up against the Tsar. So what is a bourgeois revolutionary? It's someone who wants to bring together everyone who wants to rid themselves of the Tsar. In the French Revolution, 
we have seen revolutionaries in opposition to feudalism, and these revolutionaries would say all those who are against the feudal order must take part in the revolutionary fight. These bourgeois revolutionaries would pick up all the different classes they could as long as they were against feudalism. So they would say, look, that is what Lenin is doing. He wants to do the same as the French. So in reality, he's a bourgeois revolutionary. He is not someone who places himself in the position of the working class because he worries himself with all the other classes. So therefore, he has departed himself from a class standpoint. Now you have a good enough example of how one can invoke left-wing dialogue to take up a right-wing stance. To further illustrate, I'll first read some citations from this book of Trotsky in 1904. He says, quote, If this so-called plan of Comrade Lenin realizes itself, we will have in the best case a political organization of bourgeois democracy, end quote. So this was his opinion on the book, What is to be Done, to which I just gave a presentation on his theories. So he says, If this so-called plan of Comrade Lenin realizes itself, we will have in the best case a political organization of bourgeois democracy. A revolutionary. Huh. Yet at the same time, he says all the revolutionaries who want to settle the score with the Tsar shouldn't be a part of it. Another point that explains this idea. Trotsky says our real influence on liberal politics is much more serious, to where we don't need to go into all the different classes of the population while turning our back on the proletariat. So here he is saying, as the working class, we have influence on the liberals who are also against the Tsar, and therefore we must not go and engage with the other classes. We must focus on and do extensive work amongst the working class itself. Third citation. He says the leader of the reactionary wing in our party, Comrade Lenin, gives to social democracy a definition that is nothing more than a theoretical assassination against the class character of our party. So here he is saying that what Lenin is spewing out is a theoretical assassination. These citations are essential so that you may understand well the stance which is being taken. So they are taking a pretext on the part that Lenin wants from a revolutionary Marxist concept that the working class directs the grouping of the other classes in the confrontation against the Tsar. For them to say that, by doing this, you are neglecting essential work of a Marxist, which is to organize the working class, and you gloss over the antagonism between the working class and the capitalist class. It is right here that these people make themselves think that they are more Marxist and more radical even than Lenin. They are saying he is a bourgeois revolutionary. So you see that here is the problem. In Tsarist Russia, the principal contradiction was the Tsar and feudalism against all the classes of society, and the revolution to carry out was a bourgeois one. So Lenin had the concept that the working class, as a revolutionary class, must be at the forefront of this anti-feudal revolution. The working class must take charge of giving a program and training all the classes in a radical combat against Tsarism. And if the working class can lead this fight, the battle will be more profound, more radical, and sooner we will be able to jump to the next fight, which will be the fight for socialism. While the others want the working class to rely on themselves, presenting many Marxist arguments in favor of this, what the eventual result would be is that the working class would not give itself the ambition to lead these other classes in the revolution against feudalism. The argument is very much to the left, but the result is that the tasks of the revolutionary working class become lessened.
Here for the second big point, the political base of the party of Lenin. First, the relations between the spontaneous uprisings and the socialist consciousness, and then the communist politics that Lenin defines for the working class in the situation of feudalism. To fall back to the working class and speak only of the struggle between workers and capitalists, and in fact forget that in a situation where we have feudalism, the nobles, and Tsarism, the revolution that needs to be carried out is a democratic one, and the working class needs to have a leading function in this revolution. Therefore, they must not solely worry of their own struggles against the bosses, but must also take charge of uniting all the classes in an assault against feudalism. Thirdly, on the question of the party which we developed on tonight, we cover the ideological base and the political base. Now, we will address the question of the revolutionary clandestine organization that corresponds with the program we just developed on. In light of the organization, and with everything that we have just said, this is what follows. Point 3. The Revolutionary Clandestine Organization First, we must remember the situation in the organizational domain of which Lenin was in at the beginning of the century. Everywhere there were circles of intellectuals, students, and workers that were developed in a spontaneous fashion and then would be snatched up by the police for 6 to 12 months, maximum. Hundreds of thousands of people who disappeared in Siberia. Immediately a new group would be created without any links to the previous one and without any big preparation. They read a few pamphlets and brochures and then restart the circle in 6 to 12 months, with a new load of work, small and local. This is happening everywhere. No possibility of building something long term and to build it step by step. So this is the situation in which Lenin finds himself, and he himself made a circle and regrouped a few other circles, and then he was stopped and found himself in exile to Siberia for three years. This was the same situation for hundreds and hundreds of revolutionaries. This was the reality of the Marxist movement in Russia. So what should one do in such a situation? How do we organize? The theory of Lenin was that you needed to create an organization in the tight framework of professional revolutionaries capable of ensuring firmness, energy, and the continuation of the struggle. This was his theory. In a second point, we will build upon his opinion against the opinions of those which were the latest bashing among Marxists. It must be known that at this time, everything was illegal in Russia, so a workers' union was not allowed, nor was a party. And so when the workers wanted to prepare for a strike, this was illegal. So because everything was outlawed, it's normal that when we discuss how to organize, everything was mixed and confused. So Lenin said, to be able to advance, we must first clearly distinguish in our situation between the workers' unions and the revolutionary organizations. As for the workers' unions, he specifies them as organizations dedicated to the daily struggle of workers. Now for revolutionary organization, he says this is an organization whose main task is that of carrying out a popular revolution that will dismantle Tsarism and its functions. He goes on to say that if we don't distinguish clearly between the two, we will not be able to resolve either of our problems, because first, the workers' unions, to be able to carry out strikes and gain reforms in the workplace, he says such an organization must be professional to each section of industry. This is evident. Second, 
such an organization must be very large. You need not be a Marxist to be in this sort of organization. All the workers who want to struggle against the boss must be able to join this organization. Thirdly, such an organization must not be so clandestine and conspiratorial, so it must be something that is at least somewhat open if we wish to obtain gains from strikes in the struggle against the bosses. So, separated by industry, as large as possible, and at least conspiratorial as it can be. Yet, he says an organization that tasks themselves with overthrowing Tsarism, its police, and its army, this is another thing. So, if such an organization wants to survive, he says, first the framework of such an organization must consist of people who do nothing else. They dedicate themselves, day and night, to the task of organizing against the Tsar. Here, for example, he developed the idea that a worker, at this time there were many workers throwing themselves in the movement, who were often picked up by the Tsar and sent to Siberia. He said, a worker who is a very good organizer, who has a great capacity in the organizational domain, he cannot just stay in the factory. We need to find a way with the organization to be able to pay him a small salary so that he may take care of the organizing of workers permanently, going from town to town to cultivate the organization. So it must be taken into account that we are in such a situation where one organization after another is failing. So if we wanted to straighten out that situation, there effectively was no other way than that. By selecting the most capable and devoted workers and assuring them a small salary so that they may be assigned to instruct others in a truly professional manner how to organize, how to educate, how to conduct propaganda, how to teach and apply Marxism. So if we want to get rid of this situation where one must improvise and thus very quickly fall from a hit by the Tsar, this is the path, said Lenin, to have a backbone of professionals specialized in the different branches of revolutionary work. Secondly, he says such an organization cannot be too big. On the contrary, it must be restrained, because the big problem was that the police, which was a professional police force and one of the most formidable ones in the world at this time, was of course in search of such an organization. So this is why Lenin said such an organization must be restrained and not be so large. As soon as it becomes too large, there will be all kinds of people who are not secure inside, and very quickly the Tsar will be capable of dismantling us. Thirdly, such a clandestine organization must be underground at the highest level. So he says if we continue to create an organization with a professional backbone that is not too big, and all the way clandestine, we will be able to accomplish all the revolutionary tasks as well as all the tasks of the struggle against the bosses, the tasks of the unions. But, he says, if we do as the others are prone to, by first creating unions or syndicates that are large enough, and then hope that afterwards these organizations that are more or less big will create a political party of the working class, he says we are exposed by all means, because when we start with such a large organization, you can be sure of police infiltration. Therefore, you can be sure that from the beginning it will be betrayed and we will not be capable of accomplishing the tasks of our revolution, nor the tasks of the struggle against the bosses. Although he says if we are capable of selecting people rigorously to carry out rigorous clandestine work with professionals, we will be capable 
to just as well push forward the movement to unionize. How? Well, he says such a clandestine organization will have contact with the most developed workers in the shops. It will give precise tasks to these workers to inquire upon in certain workshops and businesses. It will not be apparent to its contacts that such a clandestine organization is behind all this, nor will it reveal who is part of it. A professional organization would be capable, when needed, to produce pamphlets and to distribute them. So, if there needs to be a strike in this or that business, and we have a setup of clandestine professionals who are in regular contact with some of the best workers of the business, on the day of the strike, we will be able to produce pamphlets and distribute them with a clandestine setup. Because we must remember that making pamphlets and distributing them, all of this is already kind of illegal and was very dangerous. So Lenin's idea was if we put all our energy first towards a clandestine organization, we will be in a much better position to push forward the work and daily struggle against the bosses, because all the aspects that need to be kept a secret due to the police can be acted on by this professional organization. Whereas when you prepare a strike, and this is done with a large organization, you can be sure that the Tsar will know who made the pamphlet and who distributed them. The others would say that Lenin would take in only the cream of the crop, so to say, of the workers, and wouldn't take the middle majority of workers. His rebuttal to this was on the contrary. Insofar as we know how to organize the best of the workers in a clandestine fashion, we will be able to push forward the activities of the middle majority of workers and all other workers in a manner much more effective. He says a clandestine strike is not possible. For a strike, you need to arrive at a point where everyone agrees that we need to strike. But to prepare a strike, it's much more effective if you have a clandestine organization, well prepared in all aspects of clandestine struggle. It's a much better situation if you have such an organization to be able to prepare a strike under Tsarism first of all. Secondly, a strike is done publicly, not underground, he says. But a strike can stay underground if nobody knows about it. For example, the workers take up a strike, but if there's no one to talk about it, then no one will know unless there's an underground clandestine organization that is able to transmit this information to all parts of the country. So, this is how he shows that a clandestine organization is the bond that permits the ability to forward much more effectively the struggle of the masses and to let them be known everywhere. So as to precisely advance the big strikes, there needs to be a clandestine organization that has no contradiction whatsoever between a type of professional organization very selective and the mass struggle. On the contrary, we specifically need such an organization to expand in a successful manner the bigger struggles. Now, of course, in this context, we are speaking under the dictatorship of the Tsar, but it is still the exact same reasoning in our day in such places as the Philippines, Chile, Palestine, etc. I mentioned this situation in relation to organizations as they existed before Lenin. Then we developed on his conception of revolutionary organizations in contrast to workers' unions for the daily struggle. Now I'd like to indicate one point of criticism that was made against this concept of Lenin. So if you will, each time after each point that Lenin put forward in his theory of the party, those that were not in agreement with his points of view fought him. This was around 1902 to 1904. In the theories of Trotsky and the Mensheviks at this point in time we find this. 
This book here is an analysis of what is to be done, and one step forward, two steps backwards, two fine works on the base of organization by Lenin, which are criticized in this book. He says, Lenin's concept, or rather he says if we are to follow this concept, we will have the spectacle of a party stationed above the proletariat, an organization created for nine-tenths of intellectual Marxists. This group of professional revolutionaries walk not at the head of the proletariat, but rather instead of the proletariat. Page 123. We have here a party who thinks for the proletariat, and who substitutes politically for the proletariat. Here we start to see the approach that the Mensheviks and Trotskyites were taking against the concept of a professional organization, one that is very restrained and clandestine. They're saying it's a party that is above the working class, and thinks for the working class. These sorts of arguments are nothing new. It may speak to those who have not put much thought to the question, because what it consists of is a situation where there is a dictatorship, and knowing whether such an organization is needed to amplify the struggle of the masses or not. Their position was that the path which Lenin was suggesting was not the one to take. So the type of organization he wanted to create was not what he said. It was a fake. If it was a party above the workers, one that thought for the workers and therefore was not a party with the intent of organizing in the working class. Lenin said, With such concepts we are maintaining the amateur nature of the situation, and maintaining a situation where all these small organizations, more or less amateurs, are taking care of the struggle of the workers against the capitalists. This type of struggle could more or less continue, but with such an amateur organization, the struggle against the boss is absolutely incapable of leading a revolution to overthrow the Tsar. In other words, we have unions more or less radical, but we will not have a revolutionary party worthy of the name. Now we arrive at the fourth and final point on the question of the party of Lenin. In the third point, we spoke of the clandestine backbone of a revolutionary party being a key factor to amplify the struggle. In the fourth point, we will now talk about a few points on the conception of this party. Everything that I have set up to now is essentially what Lenin developed in the Journal of Iskra that Lenin created in 1901, and what is written in the book What is to be Done. So it must be known just as we said, Iskra was made by Lenin, Plekhanov, Martov, Zasulich, Axelrod, Potrasov, and the last to come was Trotsky. So it was seven of them who collaborated on Iskra. In the beginning, they were six, and then Trotsky was added. So the ideas that we have defended until now, all these people were in accordance with, at least in principle, at the time of Iskra. What is to be done was written at this time, and once it was released, all these people were with Lenin behind the theory of what is to be done. And this changed with the Congress of 1903, which started in Brussels and closed in London. The points on the concept of the party, to which we will further elaborate on now, are some points that were lifted for the first time in this second Congress. It was the second Congress in history, but was in fact the first real Congress worthy of the name of the party in 1903. There were three big debates, and on these big debates, Lenin's team was the team of Iskra, which completely fell apart. Here we will start to see that those who moved away from Lenin, afterwards, put into question all the theories of Iskra and what is to be done. People like Trotsky and Martov, for example, who were with Lenin, 
and who wrote with him in Iskra, and backed what is to be done. So now we will draft a point on the struggle which changed these people's camp. The first debate, that of the party, which is to be founded at the Congress, is whether there needs to be an organization more or less flexible and vague, or must there be one strict with limitations? This debate between the two positions would come together on one certain phrase. There, in the first paragraph of the party's statutes, there was a divergence between Martov and Lenin, who were two big figures of Iskra, who always fought the same battles, and for everyone was considered the same band. Then at the Congress, Martov made a proposition on the first paragraph of the statute, and Lenin proposed another. Where's the difference? A member of the party is one who knows the program. For Lenin and Martov, this was viewed the same. Lenin then says, quote, and supports the party in material methods by personal participation in one of the organizations of the party, end quote. So a member is someone who accepts the program of the party and participates personally in one of the party organizations. Martov says a member is one who knows the program, supports the party through material methods, and regularly lends personal assistance with the direction from an organization. So, you aren't yourself a member of the organization and aren't subject to organizational life, but rather, you depend on a cell, under the direction of which you do some work. So it is under this context that there was a debate, one very heated and rough. First, from Lenin's position, two principal theories that slowed down due to this debate. He says, if we say that all those who regularly participate under the direction of an organization are members of the party, this will mean that we have a vast extension of the party. And if we follow this direction in the conception of a party, we will forget that under capitalism there is a distinction to make between the masses of workers and the vanguard concerning their degree of consciousness and the degree of activities. Under the circumstances of capitalism with its oppression and its outcomes, the elements of the working class who arrive to a degree of developed consciousness and have enough energy to be active in the struggle for liberation of the working class are a vanguard. If we think that all workers are going to join in on that, we are making a grave error. To put it simply, it does not correspond with the reality of the working class under the control of capitalism. So for us, we must distinguish well between the elements who have enough comprehension of our perspective on struggle and who have the capacity, the time, and the means to dedicate to the struggle. Above all else, we must organize to unite these elements here as an organization that can amplify the united struggle of the working class. On the contrary, we must dispel a vague definition. If we put in the party enough elements that are so diverse, such as where there are conscious elements and non-conscious elements, active elements and non-active elements, we will not have an organization ready for battle and able to direct and train the masses. This is the first principle divergence. There's a second. He says, For me the party must be separate and organized. We must accept that there are elements who have a minute sense of organization. So if we want a well-ordered systemic struggle, the people who enter the party must have a certain level of organization, or with Martov's definition, we won't have the basic level of organization, because in that party, 
you will recruit people who don't want to be organized because they cannot join a cell where there is a basic collective life. For the base of the two principal objections, he says, First, how will you, Martov, control, direct, and discipline your members? So there will be many members who have the right to be members, and therefore have rights as members of the party, such as making decisions in the party, but who are unorganized and work irregularly under the direction of one of ours. But these people here, how will you hold them accountable? How will you effectively direct them? How will you keep them disciplined and dedicated? You won't have the means to do so. Secondly, he says, you want to invoke the fact that you desire a large influence over the workers, and so you say to them, me, with my definition, I will be restraining the impact of the party. Lenin says, on the contrary, the less there is in the party of indecisiveness, of uncertainty, and of a go-with-the-flow attitude, the more will we be able to amplify, advance, and cultivate the elements that are slightly less conscious. So Lenin says, there are workers who want to be in all sorts of associations, such as those relating to sports, culture, and unions. They are part of these groups, but don't have the consciousness and don't want to dedicate their time to the party. So he says, in the measure of the party where we have elements that have a sense of organization and of discipline, our party will be capable of influencing all these other working class organizations. So if we are firm in the party, we will have a great revolutionary influence over all the intermediary pockets of the working class. Thirdly, Lenin says, Martov, you are defending your position by saying that you want the working class to join the party in large amounts, so we must not be so strict. Lenin says, but I am not being too strict. I am asking for a basic level of organization, so that we may have some level of discipline, some level of control. You are saying that we need to make it easier for workers to enter. But this is not what will happen. Your formula will be most of all beneficial for intellectuals who gladly want to call themselves Marxists, yet don't want to participate in a disciplined manner to the life of the organization. This formula, consisting of those who participate under the direction of an organization, is going to favor those who merely proclaim themselves Marxist. Your organization, you pretend that it's most of all for the masses of workers, and that this is how you've come up with your formula, but in the real world, it is not for the workers that this will work. You will bring into the party most of all these intellectuals that don't want to be too disciplined, don't want to be organized. This will invite exactly those who in history are most inclined to opportunism. Now, Lenin wasn't against intellectuals, but he wanted the intellectuals who did join to have a basic level of discipline and organization. This was the big clash over the conception of the party. Second conception. Before the Congress, there were circles of students and workers scattered all over. Each circle was created by coincidence and had taken certain stances and habits coincidentally. So each one had their own fixed ideas and peculiarities and from time to time, their own craziness. So there was a problem in the party of gathering and assembling together different autonomous circles, the same as they existed thus far leading up to the Congress, or was the Congress going to create a party unified and well-managed? This was the second big dispute. 
How did this present itself? First, there were people who came in with these obligated demands from their circle. So amongst their circle, they discussed certain things and then gave certain demands that their representative had to present and defend on this or that position. Lenin refused this on principle, because in all the circles that came to life, coincidentally, they would send a representative with strict demands. This would mean that everything is decided by all the small circles, because it's these circles that have obligatory demands from the militants. No longer is it the Congress who makes the decisions. Lenin says the Congress is the union of all the representatives of each circle whose task now becomes that of systematically organizing each circle under the authority of the party. The main organ of the party needs to be the Congress. Nothing can be above the Congress. But if someone comes to the Congress and says that his circle told him that he must defend this or that position at all costs, then the Congress no longer remains the superior organ of the party. Therefore, it now becomes the circles who have the power to decide this or that position. This was the first discussion. So the existence and subsistence of these circles were being defended by people who were saying that the circles were important historical factors and have great merit. It is them who carry the party. It is them who make up the life of the party. So because they have such great value, we must let them be. So the theory to defend the circles is to leave them as they are with much autonomy. Against this theory was constructed Lenin's concept. At the heart of the question regarding the party is the principle of centralism. He said that the party can only be built on the following principles. All the units that go into the construction of the party, their circles, send the most revolutionary representative that they have in their group the one that they think is the most able. These people here make up the Congress, and it is the Congress whose task is to systematically build up the party, and who will now clarify how the party will work, what are its rules, how should the party carry itself, and what is permitted and what is not permitted. He makes clear all of this. There will be certain habits developed in this or that circle that will need to be eliminated, so it will be necessary for the central organ of the party to make the positions of the big questions. The Congress must elect leading organs of the party, and it is these leading organs who must define political principles for the whole party. If these organs are not functioning well, then the next Congress will elect others. So it will be the Congress who decides on the central organ, which will have the job of leading and clarifying the path forward for everyone. This is Lenin's principle on centralism. All those who wanted that their circle continues as it always has, and that nothing changes in their circle with their old habits remaining intact, and that the old friendships remain, they were against this idea here. It must be understood that if the Congress decides on something, a member who knows the program and works in the organization must pass on and apply the decisions passed by the Congress in all areas of the party, or else there will be no party. If until now, a circle considers that Jean or Paul or Pierre, who come once in a while when they want, as members of the party and don't participate regularly, this is something that must change. So, there will necessarily be certain habits amongst different circles that will need to change. This is to say that all of the party will need some rearranging on the principal basis of what has been elaborated on by the superior leading organ. Maybe in our day, this seems evident enough, but back then this started violent struggles and disagreements in the party. 
we can also see that each time there was a new party being created somewhere in the world, this same debate was taking place. On this debate over the substance of circles and their more or less autonomous nature brought with them the breaking of Iskra. Iskra was six people. Trotsky came in at the end, and in general, when speaking of Iskra, we speak of the six. On the debate regarding who can be a member and who cannot be, as well as the other debates in the Congress, there were members of Iskra whose positions wavered. So when the Congress decided who will be part of the editorial staff, there were different positions. Lenin didn't want to take back the six. He found that the behavior of at least three out of the six was drifting too much. They were not firm. So Lenin proposed at the Congress to elect three members to the editorial staff, Lenin, Martov, and Plekhanov, and to not re-elect the other three. Martov and the three others took this very negatively, and said that Iskra had worked out just fine until now. We need to keep it as it is. In fact, it was maintaining the old circle of friends who knew each other well, and worked together well, and so on the basis of this friendship, and the fact of putting in work together, they simply wanted to maintain this in the party. It must be noted that each one who had their own circles and own habits had the same tendency when there was a dispute in the Congress. Did Iskra need to be re-elected altogether as one block? Or does there need to be reflection and questions raised on the performance of these five to seven years that had a revolutionary behavior, more or less? This must be overcome through principles and not habits of circles and friendships. All opportunists in the party, who wanted to continue their program, their circles, and autonomous nature joined forces, of course, in this discussion, and offered a block. So these discussions on Iskra led to a formation of a front consisting of all the elements that were created in response to the revolutionary line and the decisions made at the Congress. It is at this specific moment that you had a front made up of all sorts of opportunists and the old members of Iskra. As a side note, it is no doubt interesting to see in the debate of 1903 how Lenin, with such lucidity, analyzes the behavior of everyone and can see the indications of opportunism regarding fundamental questions. Because this was not at all clear-cut, you needed a certain level of perceptiveness and a deep and attentive observation. So it is very interesting that the three people who Lenin criticized in 1903 and asked that they not be re-elected to Iskra, that these people, during the First World War, all supported the war, and when the Bolsheviks took power, they all supported the Civil War, from the side of the bourgeoisie and old Tsarists against the Bolsheviks. This here is an example of things that may seem as nuanced in the beginning, and as it comes further along, it leads to differences all the way antagonistic. It is also indicated effectively in this question that Lenin made proof of great perceptiveness. This now leads to the third point of debate in the Second Congress, or rather after the Second Congress. First is that of a loose or strict organization. Second is the subsistence of autonomous circles or unified party. And thirdly, an organization with a hierarchy and disciplined principles, yes or no. Directly after the Congress, there were in all the circles of Mensheviks positions which stated that Lenin is conducting organizational harshness and that he is blinded by the aspects of organizational bureaucracy. He is so blindly obsessed with organizational problems that he cannot see that the structure is always in service of the content, that the organization is less important than the program and the tactics of the organization. 
Papers were being written on this theme here. Lenin analyzed this in the following manner, and I want to give four points on Lenin's development. First, he says it's clear that we've known for a long time that there hasn't been any unity between Marxists on the path to follow on a program. It's clear that as long as this unity was absent, that we could not even speak of a party. The party still needed to be prepared, so there needed to be a discussion and debate over the issues of a party line and a party program. Critiquing that which is false, so that ideas may appear more clearly and we may align ourselves on the overall party line and program as well as the tactical line. But this work here was done with Iskra for two years. All the big questions of program and tactics were discussed long and hard. Those who took a position of opportunism were beaten and no longer even defended those positions. So there is a large enough unity that spreads beyond these debates of program and tactics. To have a party, it is not enough to have the same idea on a program. We must furthermore unite in the organizational aspect. There needs to be, in addition to unity on the party program and tactics, the same concept of organization. So you must know what the statutes of the organization are, and the rules are. What is the biggest problem today in real time for us revolutionaries in Russia? It is not the debate of party program and party line. There are not many significant differences left on that. Our big problem now is that our organization is very late in terms of organizing. We are not at all on point. It's always do-it-yourself amateurism. And if we don't progress in Russia, it's because our organization is not developed and organized enough. And these are the limits of our organization that will permit us to advance in the area of party program and its content. This is the backward state of our organization that creates a lot of wasted energy, such as people who fall to the hands of the police and are sent to Siberia uselessly. And the fact that our organization is not well-built makes it to where there is a discrepancy between our words and our actions, because we don't have the tools to put our words in practice. So he says in the actual situation of Russia, it's very much the question of organization that is at the center of attention. So what you are doing, Trotsky and the Mensheviks, you uplift problems which have been solved for a long time, to run from the more important and complicated problems of here and now. You spew out that content is more important than structure, that the program is more important than organization. These are all things that everyone knows, but right now, these are not the problems. So all your long developments on these subjects here are an excuse to steer clear of the burning debates at hand, the actual debates. And in this debate, you have taken opportunist conceptions of organization, an organization very big and very lenient, where we won't know how to lead its members. And on top of that, you've adopted an anarchist stance. And this, this is the problem. You say, yes, well, organizing is less important for the program, but on the contrary, it is exactly in the area of organization that you introduced concepts of opportunism and where you are starting to conduct anarchy. There, I should explain a little, when the Congress voted in the majority for Lenin's formula, this draft was not accepted by all. We have said that indeed we must see how everyone will carry themselves, and the majority of the Congress elected Lenin, Martov, and Plekhanov, and not the six as a whole. After this vote, Martov got up and said that if it's like this, then I will no longer write for Iskra. 
and after the Congress, he refused to write for the newspaper. So this was the way of the boycott. The rest who were not re-elected to the editorial board also decided to boycott the editorial board and the central organ. This is an example of anarchist behavior. An elementary rule of organizational life is that when we lose on a vote, we submit to the majority and practice discipline. Quit the dispute, and in three to four years, possibly revisit the issue and bring it back up for discussion. But when you are on the side of a minority of an issue, to boycott the work and to leave the organs to which we were along to is anarchistic. It's clear that if you allow this in a party, this party will not exist, and in less than a year will disappear. Each one will have their own issues that they wish to boycott or sabotage, because they are not in agreement with this or that issue. So there wouldn't be the most elementary of rules, which is the submission of the minority to the majority. Fifthly, Lenin says, all your discussion on organization being less important than the program is talk that corresponds perfectly with the habits and ideology of different types of professors and intellectuals that we see once upon a time enter in the party, and their most valuable point was their incorrigible individualism for most. So for these people, they gladly are in accordance with our program, and will gladly say all this is correct, and agree with all of the ideas, but don't ask them to be organized and disciplined, because being organized for them is like a monstrous thing where they see their personality and their liberties being bullied. So when they, as intellectuals in this party, must follow the rules where the minority must conform to the majority, they find this to be unacceptable. If the inferior organ must submit to the superior organs, the same thing, same critique. If there is a division of labor in the party, they find that this impedes on their freedom to study. So when you have a party, there must be a certain question that be resolved first. Normally, you would assert priorities to different comrades and will carry out a division of tasks. Therefore, there must be an organ to direct and indicate which tasks need to be accomplished and then assign them. If we have the habit of saying, me, I defined my own work, my own research and need the freedom to choose my own work and development, it's clear that you could not have systemic and rational politics in such an organization, that you will be heading in all different directions. So Lenin says, on the people who are against the party and the bureaucracy, they are trying to protect their individualism. There's a great number of intellectuals who entered the party, and who are in fact preventing the rational function of all organization, not only the revolutionary functions. I will finish by indicating that all these points I presented on the development of the organization, hierarchical and discipline, by Lenin, was the debate the most relentless and the most bloody amongst all the debates between the Mensheviks and Bolsheviks. So in his book, Trotsky says that Lenin wanted to create little robots, create men who are patchy, very unilateral, and walk a fine line, and that Trotsky's concept of wanting to develop this political personality globally will make his will respected against all the centers of the party, by boycott if necessary. Page 140. So this means every member of the party can do as he pleases, and if the leadership is against it, then we must boycott. So when you see it put like this, it's of course the open program of complete anarchy and organization. 
The exact citation is, quote, Our ideal is not to be a fragmented man who moves rapidly with precision and obedience hand or foot under the direction of the center, end quote. So this is his description that he gives of the robotic man who marches only under the direction of the center of the party. Our line is not to be a fragmented man, and that the global political personality will actively react to all these questions on the life of the party, and will make respected in full view by all the centers, its will on all fronts possible, all the way, and yes, in the most severe cases a boycott included. It's said eloquently, and there's no mistaking the direction of the phrases. He defends as well the existence, since he was number seven, of the editorial board. And since the editorial board was not re-elected in full, he defended as well the circles and the groups that existed before, as well as their autonomous nature. Page 154. Until the Second Congress, isolated communities all the way independent existed as entities both real and formal. Lenin thinks of turning the real problem, which is to develop in and with work that is accomplished in common with a sentiment of moral and political responsibility, by giving to the Central Committee the right to dissolve all that finds itself crossing in its path. Is it therefore indispensable to realize the stupidness of the centralism by Lenin, where all the real elements of the party, where nothing and no one isn't under control, and opposes any resistance to the Central Committee in their insignificant attempts to disorganize them, but all serious and important tendencies placed before the alternative will dissolve themselves through the spirit of discipline, or will they fight for their existence without taking into account any discipline? They will choose, for sure, the second eventually. It is clear what he is trying to say. When reading a citation, it's always a little complicated to explain, but what he is saying is straight to the point. What Trotsky is saying is, before the Congress, there were all kinds of entities, more or less independent, that existed. So at the Congress, Lenin won the majority, and they decided on a number of different things. So now the decisions that were taken at the Congress were to be put in effect everywhere. So he says that they are going to disrupt the life of all existing units, and he is making a call to all the existing units to refuse without taking into account any discipline. So Trotsky's saying these circles, who have their own habits, their specific forms of work, their own rules, they are not at all obliged to follow the strict discipline and imposed from the top by the Congress. It's clear that all elementary forms of organization are to be refused. So if the Congress, which unites all the best elements of the party, can no longer decide anything because no matter what is to be decided, there's a call to not follow the discipline of the party, there will no longer be a party, and for sure, not a revolutionary one. This was to indicate some of the objections that were made against the Bolshevik party that Lenin created in 1903. We can continue all this by underlining that when we see the development of the Russian Revolution, it is no doubt the concept of the party of Lenin which is the basis of its victory. So if Lenin, on these fundamental principles, hadn't created a clandestine, disciplined, and firm party, even in the hardest of conditions, never in the Soviet Union, in Russia, would we have been able to realize the October Revolution, which led to the creation of the great Soviet Union. And so it can be said 
that since that time almost all victorious revolutions in the world who are developed in the socialist sense have proven and given justice to these basic principles indicated by Lenin, because only a party constructed on these principles can concentrate all the vanguard elements in a given society, can concentrate all the scientific knowledge there is in society, that only such an organization can act in an effective fashion, united and disciplined in every circumstance, legal and illegal, in a situation where the revolution is at the forefront, and in a situation where the revolution is taking many hits. And so we can say that it is this party here that constitutes the key to victory in the fight for socialism. And we hold this true tonight. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information, or if you're interested in attending classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube channel, or email info at psmls.org.